Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we're back in the D.C. studio, where I'm joined by Elizabeth Nelson and Aaron Jung. Elizabeth is an international tax partner, and Aaron is an international tax director in our Washington National Tax Services practice. Elizabeth, welcome back to the podcast. You're our first returning guest. Thank you. Good and, to be here. And Aaron, welcome to your inaugural edition of the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. All right. Well, we are. I usually don't spend a lot of time talking about dates here on the podcast, but it is the summer solstice. It's June 21. We're a day before what I think many of us thought was the most important day of the summer for international taxation, which is the date that is 18 months exactly after the initial enactment of the TCJA. And we haven't seen as many regs as I think many of us might have thought, at least final regulations. But on June 14th, Treasury and the IRS did release 318 pages of final regulations under our global intangible low tax income rules, or otherwise referred to as Section 951 Cap A. And then on the same date, we actually got some more proposed rules on a much talked about, much anticipated high tax exception. We'll see if we end up with any more final regs in the next day. We also ended up with some other regulations on Section 245 Cap A, which we'll leave to another podcast, but plenty to talk about on, on that provision. But maybe before we dive into the, the final regulations, Aaron, maybe just remind the listeners um, what guilty is. I think maybe a lot of people on the podcast who have seen the title maybe joined because they thought this was a criminal type of podcast <laughs> with the guilty provisions. But uh, for those that did join, you are on the wrong podcast. But uh, we are here to talk about uh, international tax. So just remind the listeners, what, what is guilty? What's the general policy? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's part of the 2017 bill. Congress wanted to move us to a participation exemption system. Right. That means, you know, foreign earnings can come back tax free and they wanted to have some kind of base erosion rule to backstop, you know, shifting mobile or intangible income offshore. And so the guilty rules, as you, as you put them, um, go after just that. What they do is they look at all of your offshore earnings or all of your offshore income um, and try to say, well, what part of that is attributable to intangible income? And that's that's determined formulaically. Basically, there's a routine return developed on your tangible property. Everything in excess of that is deemed intangible income. It's included in the U.S. tax base. It's taxed at a reduced rate through a, a rate reduction deduction, um, and then a foreign tax credit is provided. And the, and the thought is, well, if you pay enough foreign taxes on that, then that you know the foreign tax credit should wipe out the U.S. tax at the reduced rate, and so only low-taxed income ostensibly should be subject to these rules. Um, I think you've talked before, Doug, on your podcast about how sometimes even high-tax income can end up with residual U.S. tax under those rules, and so maybe guilty isn't the right name for it. It you know, should be named something else, but uh, but that, that, that's kind of the gist of it, trying to get at those. Yeah, and we've talked a lot on the podcast about, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be low tax. It doesn't need to be intangible. It's really anything that is in excess of a 10% return on the depreciable, tangible assets that a controlled foreign corporation has. We've also spoken a lot about, is this really a minimum tax? And we'll get into that here, I think, in a few minutes when we talk about the high tax exception. But I think that consensus seems to be that it is not truly a, a minimum tax. 
And because of expense apportionment, specifically interest expense apportionment, largely because of interest expense apportionment, there are many companies who have a blended rate in their CFCs well above the 13.125% that are still paying U.S. tax on their guilty income because, as you mentioned, the, the foreign tax credit regime that is used to try to avoid double tax and guilty still creates, because they cannot use all the credit, still ends up resulting in some U.S. residual tax. And so there were some proposed regulations that I think were issued back in September, mm -hmm. and we've got those final regs. But remind us, Elizabeth, what do those, generally speaking, those, those proposed regs tell us? So the proposed regs did have some rules with respect to the how do you determine pro rata share, how much do you pick up, you know, of tested income and the other, other amounts that go into the guilty calculation at the U.S. shareholder level. Um, and there were some rules in there that were a little bit troubling that they've then addressed in the final regulations. Um, but mainly the proposed guilty regs address the mechanics of guilty. How do you comp how do you compute it? What is tested income? What are allocable deductions to a certain extent were addressed in the proposed regs? And how do you then um, do the computation at the US group level? So a lot of mechanical regs. And then there were also some um, anti-abuse rule rules with respect to transactions that occurred in what everybody's calling the gap period so if you have a fiscal year CFC or for your fiscal year taxpayer um, in the period after toll charge applied but before guilty applied, so in the gap period in, an, in, a, in the toll charge year for a fiscal year filer, and um, people did step up transactions where they sold um, assets and got basis that might have been then depreciable under the guilty regime. So they addressed those kinds of transactions which they did not feel like we're appropriate to be able to take amortization or depreciation in the guilty regime or use the QBI, have that as deemed intangible, <clears throat> deemed return um, that would reduce the guilty amount. Yeah, and, and for those that are interested in some of those <coughs> me mechanics with respect to the actual guilty proposed regs, Matt Chen, one of our partners, we did a very detailed dive into, into those proposed regs. So I think we can focus today on really what are some of the, the, the surprises or maybe just the big changes that, that, that we saw in those proposed regs. I think one of the things that was interesting is that they were very explicit in the, in the final regs that they did not adopt a high tax exception. And that was something that we were very interested in, but yet in, the, in, a, in a similar package issued on the same day in proposed regs, we got the high tax exception. But what else, what were some of the other key changes or maybe surprises that, that you saw in the, in the final regs? I don't know that there was anything really surprising in the final regulations. I think they narrowed the scope of the pro rata share provisions that people were concerned about, that you might have to somehow pick up guilty amounts after you might have sold and no longer owned uh, stock in a foreign corporation. Um, they've, they've you know, narrowed that to only pick up guilty amounts when you own the stock. And uh, yeah, and I think that the concern was is that maybe the related party transactions would potentially limit the amount of guilty, right. and then so they wrote a anti-abuse rule that I think was much more broader, broad broader than, the, than than they intended. Right, so. and so that it caught some just actual real or some third-party dispositions where the the taxpayer maybe no longer held those shares, and it was uncertain how they would still compute guilty with that anti-abuse rule. So they've, they've narrowed that back to really what they wanted to address. And then um, they've also, uh, you know, finalized some of the, they finalized the mechanical rules. Um, and in there, they decided to treat uh, U.S. partnerships as aggregates, so flow-throughs for purposes of the guilty calculation. So there'll be no 
guilty inclusion for for any U.S. partnerships. It will all be determined at the partner level. Yeah, and the concern with that was, and I think a lot of um, you know the various investment structures mm -hmm. where you had a U.S. partnership, and then let's assume that you had lots of partners of that U.S. partnership, and maybe none of those partners, for example, held greater than ten percent. Right. Well, the U.S. partnership would have been the U.S. shareholder if that U.S. partnership held CFCs. And if it was combined, if, it, if the guilty computation was actually done at the partnership level, then the U.S. partnership would be the U.S. shareholder. It would have included guilty, and then that guilty would have flowed up to all of those less than 10% partners. And so that was obviously concerning for, for those of us that were doing a lot of the compliance and just really trying to understand, mm -hmm. you know, how that guilty mechanics were computed. And I think, I think rightly from a policy perspective, they determined that no. You know, it's really only going to be the U.S. shareholders of the that are partners in the partnership that it is done actually at the partner level, um, in an aggregate view as opposed to an entity view at the partnership. And so, presumably, there are a number of investors that were less than 10% owners in these partnerships that will not have guilty and really have simplified things. Right, and it, and the compliance too. And, and it is different from the proposed regs, right? Because the proposed regs had that kind of goofy hybrid approach where it was mm -hmm. an entity some of the time and an aggregate some of the time. It just depended on how much, you know, the partner owned in, in, in the CFC. So this is a lot simpler and, you know, at least it's, it's different than where we've been historically in like sub F, for example. Right. But it's, 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 I think, simpler to apply and think through conceptually than what, and, what they had in the proposed regs. And in proposed regs, they have also proposed the same treatment for subpart F purposes. So that's, that's right. out there as a parallel to have uh, consistent treatment across subpart F and guilty. It's just in proposed regs that would need to be finalized. So what about, I think one of the other big changes was was the anti-abuse rule, and there was some coordination with the two with the, with other proposed regs under the 245 Cap A. But you want to talk a little bit about the anti-abuse rules? So the anti-abuse rule, as I said, was to address kind of those step-up transa mm -hmm. transactions in the gap period. And instead of disregarding the transactions, which they did under the proposed regs, in the final regulations, they respect the transactions. So you get basis for, you know, all purposes of the code except for guilty. And then they allocate that amortization or depreciation to non-tested income. So you don't get it um, in the guilty calculation. You also don't get to count it as QBI. But it's basis for 901M provisions and other you know, adverse taxpayer provisions where you may need to consider um, you know, those provisions and whether they have an adverse effect on your tax return. There is an election that you can reduce the basis, so effectively give you a disregard of the transaction, um, so you don't have the effect of those other provisions that might adversely affect you. And, and did the, the proposed regulations, I think, were very focused on just the depreciable, tangible assets um, during, for, for, for these step-ups. And I think the final regulations expanded that also to, the, to any amortizable, sort of non-depreciable assets. Well, I think um, even the proposed regs took into account... Um well, I, th I think the proposed regs it had to be it had to be amortizable under 167, and so the final regulations expand that to property that may not be amortizable. Okay. I think is the change there. So, so if it widened right, the property widened subject to the provision. Yeah, the, the other broadening I'm thinking about in the final regs, um, and Elizabeth, you might have thoughts on it as well. Like, I think the proposed regs were really focused on what's the tested income impact. And the final regs clarify that you, know, you also can't depreciate this stuff for like ECI or subpart F purposes. It just all gets sunk into this kind of residual category where it doesn't reduce any any income that's subject to current U.S. tax. 
Right. I mean, it it is, I mean, it's a different approach, but it's consistent with where they wanted things to end up, which is that you don't get the deduction for basically any purposes right. of an inclusion. And so by allocating it to residual income category, um, that that's the effect. Yeah, there was a lot written as we were waiting for the regs after the, the statute came out about these gap period type of transactions. And mm -hmm. I think if there's one thing that is clear that Treasury and the IRS have spent a lot of time thinking about those particular transactions. And we've seen this here in the final regs. And then we're also seeing it in the context of 245 cap A and how the, the which is the dividends received deduction on future distribution of those earnings. But it's been interesting to see that there's been a lot of thought put into to those types of transactions and a lot was written about those um, and a lot talked about at various conferences. Well, and, and even outside of the regulations, you know, so that there was a technical corrections discussion draft from earlier this year and no, no doubt had the Treasury had input on it. You know, that that was kind of former Chairman Brady's name on it but that that also goes after these kinds of transactions in a couple of different ways different than the regulations but um, also taking on those transactions mm -hmm. one of the, the the things i remember being kind of a head scratcher from the proposed regs were the basis adjustment rules mm -hmm. um, specifically yeah. with respect to, to tested losses Aaron, can you remind us kind of how those basis adjustment rules as proposed were and kind of what the reason for that is. And then I think they kind of reserved on that in the final regs. But that was something I know for taxpayers that were doing dispositions and we weren't even sure exactly how guilty was computed. And then trying to figure out if we had these basis adjustments to determine the gain or loss on a disposition was really challenging. Yeah, so, so you know, take a step back, right? Guilty is computed on an overall basis, right? So you net tested losses against tested income. What the proposed reg said was, well, hey, you know, if you're using that tested loss to offset the tested income, that's a benefit, and you should have some kind of attribute modification for that. So we're going to have a notional basis reduction to the extent the tested loss was used to offset tested income. It's not a real basis reduction, but what will happen is if you sell that CFC stock, at that point you'll take into account the basis reduction and have potentially less loss or more gain to take into, take into account on that disposition. Um, and you know, and, and the theory was, well, you know, if you sold the, the, the entity that had the tested income that was offset, you wouldn't pick up gain on that because Section 1248 would apply to any gain, be recharacterized with respect to those earnings. So it's kind of a mismatch, Treasury would say, you know, 0% on the gain, but, you know, but for a rule, you can recognize, you know, some kind of tax effective loss. And, you know, there's some comments on that because, for one, it reduced the, it reduced, it reduced the basis by the entire amount of the tested loss used. Even and so that's a you know twenty one percent at a twenty one percent tax rate twenty one percent tax effect right. loss that you don't get, but you may not have had a twenty one percent tax benefit at a minimum you're going to get a ten and a half percent tax benefit because right. tested income is only taxed at half the U S rate, but but on top of that if you had you know foreign tax credits you know when that income was recognized you may have ended up you know the tested loss may have provided zero U S right. tax benefit and yet you're going to have a twenty one percent you know detriment when when you go to dispose of it and so there's comments on that. Um, also, I, I, I agree with you on the head scratcher comment. You know, you look at um, the, the kind of system Congre Congress enacted back in 17, and, you know, th there's simply no disallowance of losses when you sell CFC stock, right? There's some countries that have rules like that that right. say, hey, we're going to exempt, you know, gains and losses on selling, uh, selling foreign subsidiaries, and uh, the statutes we ended up with don't have that. Um, but what, con what, what Treasury ended up doing, like you said, is reserving on it in the final regs. They say, hey, you know, we're going to continue to study this issue. And if they issue future guidance, it's going to be prospectively effective. And so for now, that's kind of off the table. 
Yeah, I think that was was certainly a welcome change uh, to to the the, the final regulations. Um, I mentioned the the June 22nd date um, that we've all been waiting for for these final regs. There were a couple of provisions that I I feel like kind of jumped into the the guilty regs from from the FTC regs that you know largely it was consistent with what we seen saw in the guilty proposed regs, but. I think there were a couple of provisions that kind of moved over from the, the, the FTC regs and just wanted to make sure that listeners and practitioners, taxpayers are aware that, you know, those kind of moved in. I presume it was to be able to get these into the under the wire before the June 22nd date to be able to be retroactive the 18 months back to the enactment of the TCJA. But Elizabeth, what, what you know, were a couple of those provisions? So one of them was the uh, 245 cap A D or D on the 78 gross up. So they finalized the reg, the proposed reg that basically said you don't get one. You don't get a 245 cap A D or D against a 78 gross up. Um, somewhat controversial mm-hmm. because there maybe is no statutory support for that um, because of the effective dates are what they are in the statute. But they put it in. It's in a final regulation. Yeah, and I think that's a similar theme that we're seeing with respect to the other 245 cap A regulations as well. Right. And the other provision was with respect to uh, stock uh, interest expense apportionment. So there was a rule that basically shifted, um, you know, you could base a shift from a loss company that was equity funded to uh, an inclusion company for under 965. Um, And you there was a provision in the interest expense apportionment regulations that allowed you to act like you made that election, even if you didn't make it because it was an election. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you had a decrease in the basis of the stock of the, the deficit company and no increase in the inclusion company. And this was to deal with um, an issue that came up when you prorated losses and had the PTI that was counted in the inclusion company, and but the loss went away because you had an E&P increase and you've somehow magically increased your foreign asset basis, even mm. though there was no increase. And so this role was to deal with that. And um, basically, there was also a limited basis election that allowed you not to have gain on that basis shift when you made the election and limited the decrease to the basis in the stock as opposed to the prorated loss amount. And this election, basically, this provision says you can decrease it for the full amount Mm -hmm. and your stock can go negative. Yeah. And so, I mean, that. You know, companies that that had that issue and as or and and or that have taken the position on the Section seventy eight gross up mm-hmm. mostly related to the nine sixty five toll charge obviously should be aware that you know I think that many of us were waiting assuming that would be in a final FTC package which I'm speculating we are not going to get before before tomorrow before June twenty right. second <laughs> and so we th- those provisions. Pe- taxpayers should be mindful of are are final and, and retroactive right and one's you know taxpayer adverse one would say and the other one's i think taxpayer friendly so um certainly the basis reduction is welcome right um aaron maybe before we jump into the the high tax exception on this because i think so many of us have been focused on this june 22nd date and um, did, did you learn anything as part of the, the reg packages that, that were sent out? I mean, is, does it pretty much mean that all of these proposed regulations that we've been talking about on cross-border tax talks for the last year and a half, that other than what was brought in through these final guilty regs, that everything's going to be prospective? Or, you know, remind us kind of how that, that works from an from a actual policy and perspective and a 
legal and retroactive effect. Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the reason why we care about the 18-month rule is, you know, uh, not, not, well, Section 1705B, right, kind of sets forth when regulations can be retroactive, and generally they can't be retroactive prior to the f date of first public notice, right? So, you know, um, you, you see it in proposed form, and that, that's typically the, the, the first point when it can be effective. There is an exception for regulations that are issued within 18 months of the enactment of new legislation, and so that's why, you know, we care that, you know, tomorrow's a year and a half from the TCGA because um, any regulation that's issued, at least in final form and potentially in temporary form, think about that on the 245 cap A regs, but um, that's issued, you know, by, by that 18-month mark um, can be retroactive to the date of legislation. For everything else, they can't rely on that exception, um, and so think about all the proposed regs we've seen, you know, I think it's like a, more than a thousand pages of proposed regs, might, might be close to 1,500 at this point. Mm -hmm. um, they can't be retroactive to the date of the legislation, but they can be retroactive to the date of the first public notice, and particularly to tax years ending after the date of first public notice. And so for Think about calendar year taxpayers first. We got a huge amount of proposed regs last year on pretty much all the major major provisions, right? On on beat, on FTC, on, yeah. on FTC, on FDII. Well, on on on, uh, on, on anti hybrids. Yeah. Um, 163J. 163J, and so you know that has a that has a delayed effective date, but yep. yeah, that, that, that's that's right. So 163J has that proposed in it. But but for all of those, they could even do it with 160 day, you know, subject to like, you know, query whether that's a change from proposed to final. But but otherwise, you know, could be retroactive for tax years ending after those. And so like, let's pick foreign tax credit for example. So, wouldn't expect those regulations to be retroactive to the date of legislation, but I would expect them to be retroactive for tax years ending after the date they came out. And you know, for calendar years, that's calendar year 2018. That's right. basically the same yeah, thing. Exactly. Like there, there might be some fiscal years. Or maybe like some short years where it's a little different, but for most taxpayers, it can be effectively equivalent. Right. And so I think you know part of you, know, you mentioned the two kind of foreign tax credit pieces that snuck into this package. Well, I think part of that was they want to make sure those could be effective to the date of legislation and not miss something. But for the others, you know, be retroactively effective. Maybe in a few cases, taxpayers would be able to rely before then. I'm not sure that'll always be the case. Um, but yeah, I think that all the regulations that came out last year continue to be relevant and will probably continue to apply to last year once they're finalized. Yeah, and I think as we think about potential retroactivity and as companies and practitioners are looking for certainty, the other thing that I've been reminding people is that there were a number, and that is this might be the understatement of the podcast, there were a number of technical corrections that were mentioned by the Joint Committee of Taxation and a lot even beyond that that have been discussed that obviously outside the regulatory context could effectively have retroactive effect, right. you know, assuming they're actually technical corrections and not new law. But there's still a whole bunch of uncertainty in a number of these areas. And as we think about technical corrections or, or regulations could really still change with retroactive effect the impact of some of these rules. So let's move to the, the high tax exception. So this is something that obviously I've spent a lot of time thinking about with my, you know, U.S.-based multinational clients and we think about global intangible low taxed income that you know if companies if and and because guilty is determined on a blended basis for all of your cfcs then i just assume that as long as that blended rate of of tax on all of the your cfc is at or above 13.125% then it must not be guilty because it's above that kind of low standard rate so we have the proposed high tax exception 
So if if if, all, if my blended rate and all of my CFCs is thirteen point one two five, am I am I out of jail? Am I no longer guilty? I, I, the, the regs <laughs> didn't exactly work like the proposed regs yeah. didn't exactly work like that, did they? No, they didn't. They're, it's an eighteen point nine percent rate, so they did not choose to apply it at a thirteen point one two five percent rate. They used the effectively the high right. tax from the subpart F, which is ninety percent of the U.S. federal rate, as opposed to the the lower guilty rate. So that was the first. Uh. And it's also applied QBU by QBU, so it's not CFC by CFC. For example, um, item of income like the subpart F, high tax election. And it is also has to apply to all related U.S. shareholders. If one makes the election, they all have to make the election. So it effectively would apply across the board to all of your high-tax QBUs. Yeah, so you can't pick and choose the CFCs, right? right? So there was some question that, that we received from clients and discussed on a number of panels that, well, if we could pick on a CFC by CFC basis, then taxpayers could effectively blend to an appropriate rate such that they could utilize those foreign tax credits because the foreign tax credits in the guilty basket otherwise just expire, they fall off, there's no carryover. So if taxpayers could choose on a C by C by C by CFC by CFC basis, they could then effectively blend into that uh, appropriate rate. But what you're saying, the, the what the proposed regulations say, no, if the, the U.S. shareholder, the group of the U.S. shareholder, if you pick it for one, you have to pick it for all. Right. And, and they've asked for comments on whether it should be CFC by CFC or whether they should combine QBUs in the same country. So, you know, taxpayers should make comments because I think they're looking for input on this. And this is kind of the first version of it. Um, they may or may not change it, but I think comments will affect, may affect the outcome of what is put into a final regulation. But, but the QBU by QBU is pretty interesting mm -hmm. because guilty is an overall approach, right? right? You take all your CFCs, you blend them all together, you know, and so, so one, one, you know, might think, oh, well, okay, fine, it's 18.9. I'm going to scratch my head some more at that. But, but at least, you know, if my, if my overall effective foreign effective rate is 20%, I'm good to go. And the answer is no, not necessarily. Actually, you need to look at, you know, your operations in each, each other country, each QBU, and, you know, if some are 25 and some are 15, well, the, the 25 can get pulled out, but the 15 can't, and, and just kind of go through that math. Um, and, and we should add that disregarded transactions are regarded for this purpose. So if you do have income that's being paid between, you know, QBUs right now under a CFC, that's going to be regarded for this purpose so that um, that gets counted in the effective rate calculation. Yep. Yeah, that, that's trying to measure that effective rate for each QBU, which just adds a new layer of complexity from a U.S. perspective, because right. historically, you don't really care about those transactions, you know, maybe like 97 or something like that. But, but very, typically, you didn't care about those disregarded transactions. They were disregarded mm -hmm. for U.S. purposes, and right. now you need to add them back in. Yeah, and, and the reason, just to, to be clear, that I think that Treasury felt inclined to do the QBU by QBU rule is that when they made the decision, presumably to make it on that all CFCs needed needed to to elect, presumably they wanted to prevent companies from effectively putting everything under one CFC and, and checking the box and right. doing some type of a big holding company with everything checked to effectively create the blending that they otherwise wouldn't allow if you were doing it on a CFC by CFC basis. And then because of that, the complexities then to determine actually what is the, the rate of tax on each respective disregarded entity, if you will, they use the, the QBU by QBU approach. And, and I absolutely agree, Aaron. I mean, it's just we, one of the things we've spent a lot of time on cross-border tax talks is all the additional 
complexities and compliance requirements that taxpayers now have as a result of TCJA. And, you know, I talked that, you know, they didn't tear down the house when they, when they were building the new tax reform. They just added four layers, four floors onto an already kind of creaky foreign tax credit based structure. And this is just more potential additional compliance and complexities that I think taxpayers are going to have if they want to take advantage of the, the, the high tax exception. Well, and I think it's important to point out this may not be a benefit for some taxpayers because right. there are, you know, side effects or detriments to it that have to be considered because you might think, well, I get all my high taxed income out. And so that's a good thing. You know, that's not going to be subject to tax anymore under the guilty regime. But you, the add-on effect is that you don't get credits, you know, as a result of that income being taken out. So there's a proportionate amount of the credits that goes away. And you have an interest expense apportionment effect of it where you are pulling part of your stock bases into a 245 cap A subgroup and right. pulling some interest expense away. But you've also got the add back of that interest expense to the denominator of your FTC fraction. So that could change the math beyond, you know, effectively it changes your foreign tax credit math beyond just looking to see what's the amount of our U.S. taxable income on the guilty. Right. You've got to do the whole calculation and model it out because it ultimately it may not be a benefit if you end up paying residual U.S. tax on your low taxed income because you don't have cross crediting anymore. Yeah. It just goes modeling is just so important. And I mean, even stepping back beyond what I would call kind of those downstream foreign tax credit implications of the high tax exception. Just for, for companies um, that are considering whether to take this high tax exception, I do want to talk about when it even applies. Mm-hmm. But for companies that would consider even electing the high tax exception, you know, one of the, the fact patterns that I was considering is, is a company in a high tax jurisdiction, for example, that has net operating loss carry forwards. And so even though they're operating in, let's say, a high tax jurisdiction like France or Germany, and then they end up using NOL carry forwards, well, the rate of tax that they could actually be paying on those earnings in a given year could be well below the 18 percent. Right. And and so when you start to do the, the 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 computation on a CFC by CFC basis, and you have to elect the high tax exception, well, then that low tax CFC, which many of us wouldn't consider a low tax CFC because it's in a very high tax jurisdiction, but there's NOLs, then all of a sudden that CFC now is guilty. For, for those respective earnings in any particular year. And for the companies that thought they wanted to get into the high tax exception because they were trying to reduce the amount of interest expense, all of a sudden they might be paying more U.S. tax on that those quote-unquote low-taxed earnings, which none of us may have thought were actually low-taxed. It's just NOL carry-forwards. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's really modeling the, the implications that is really important. And then the downstream implications as far as what happens after it's high tax and it goes into the residual bucket, it adds to the denominator and impacts your FTC. Really, it, it's it's some complex calculus to, to be yes. done. Yeah, you, you know, that, that kind of timing difference issue you're raising, and it, it, it's particularly acute with NOLs, but it, it could rise with other timing differences too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really highlights the, the the system we've gone to, which is kind of year by year for your foreign subsidiaries, right? So in the past, we had pooling, you know, for foreign tax credits down below, and and you, you, we still have, but not not of as much relevance to the guilty guilty system, and not for this high tax exception system kind of rules like OFLs, ODLs that you know take into account timing differences over time and try to get you to a better average answer. Um, the system we look at now is kind of you know current year snapshot year right. by year, and that's great if everything's measured the same way for that right. year. But the moment that things transcend years, 
it doesn't work as well and you start hitting these anomalies like you're highlighting and wonder are the rules working quite the way they're intended to. Absolutely. And then, you know, the timing differences in the foreign jurisdictions mm-hmm. can be very acute yep. and, and right. you know, really change the, the answer, particularly for this high tax exception. Definitely. So what about, Aaron, the the with these high tax exception, are we going to be able to to go back for our 18 returns and and elect the high tax that I think we were all hoping, but talk a little bit about potential effective date. Yeah, no, no, uh, the answer is no. And I feel like you were setting me up on this, Doug, because uh, all the regulations you've been talking about on the podcast are potentially going to be retroactive to, to, to last year. These are proposed to be effective for tax years beginning after they're finalized. So if they're finalized this calendar year in December, they'd be effective for 2020. If they don't get finalized this calendar year, they may not be effective till 2021. And in no case are they proposed to be effective for 18 or 19. Now, that could change in the final regs, mm-hmm. right? The right. final regs could have a different effective date, or, or they could say taxpayers can rely on this for prior years. I don't know if they will. Which, I don't know. Which if, is not in the reg right now. It's, right. It's There's not. no reliance language. And, you know, it, it would be an interesting spot for folks to be in if there was reliance language by then. Do, do they amend their 2018 return? Right. It kind of makes you wonder what will happen. But at least as they're written, um, it could be a little while until folks can take advantage of these. Right. And the other thing I think that's interesting about these regulations is the ability for a taxpayer to be able to change whether it has, uh, when it makes this high tax election. So, Needless to say, companies go through major business transformations, dispositions, acquisitions. So you can imagine a company would want to elect the high tax exception and then maybe not want to uh, elect the, the subsequent year. So the way the proposed rules are adopted is you get one free change. So you can mm-hmm. elect the high tax exception. You can withdraw it. But then to, to change again, you have to wait 60 months. Right. And then you're locked in for 60 months. And then you are locked in for another 60 months. So they seem to borrow some of the theory from the check the box rules to kind of give you one freebie and then you're locked in for for five years, Mm -hmm. absent a change of control, which was pretty narrowly written. Yes, agreed. And so, you know, so I think the first point is, is that, first of all, this is not going to, absent a change in final regs from the proposed regs, this may not even apply until, you know, for for calendar year taxpayers to 2020 or 2021, depending when these things Mm -hmm. are actually finalized. And given the relatively narrow scope, I, I just think that the number of taxpayers, as this was written, that are actually would take advantage of the high tax exception is going to be relatively low. I, I think that maybe NOL taxpayers, so U.S. taxpayers that are in a net operating loss that are recognizing guilty, and because the Section 250 deduction is only available for companies actually paying U.S. tax, that guilty is actually soaking up 21% NOLs. I can imagine U.S. NOL companies really looking closely at the, the high tax exception to try to turn that off. Well, and I I expect they're going to push back on the revocation provisions, though, because they probably don't have an NOL every year. Yeah, fair enough. if their business is in and out of NOLs, they're not going to want to lock themselves into a high-tax exception. Yeah, great point. You think about those cyclical industries, right, in particular, that really it would be difficult to to know what's going to take place for for 60 months and to be locked in could be be challenging. Well, and just draw back to Elizabeth's earlier point, for some taxpayers, making this election could actually be a cost. It could be detrimental right. because you're pulling off, you know, pulling out the high tax jurisdictions and just leaving the lower ones left for guilty. And so, you know, it's great when you're in a loss year at the shareholder level, but if you lock yourself in for the years when you're not, you know, you could be causing more harm than help 
once you're right. locked in. And I mean, you could say this is guilty at its purest form. You're taxing, low, you know, you're you're only taxing low taxed income, but you can cross credit at the U.S. shareholder level now, you, high tax and low tax. So is this really guilty at its purest form? Yeah, I mean, guilty at its purest form is an overall approach, right? right. It's, exactly. You know, there have been proposals out there to do per country minimum taxes, and Congress didn't go that route in 2017. Right. They did an overall approach, and there's there's pros and cons of that, um, and and so you know it's the QBU by QBU aspect of this is uh, it's different. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to to leave it at that. I think that maybe my final comment would be I think that if one thing that Treasury has shown over the course of the last eighteen months is an interest to listen to practitioners, mm-hmm. academics, taxpayers. Um, hopefully some are listening to the cross-border tax talks and uh, from, from some of the comments that we have, or at least some of the taxpayers and practitioners will memorialize some of those comments. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, understandably, they uh, hopefully just this first pass is relatively narrow, and they will look to try to expand it to be, in my view, I think in our view, a little bit more consistent with the overall policy of guilty, but time will certainly tell. So with that, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks to Aaron Jung and Elizabeth Nelson from our Washington National Tax Services office for joining me on this week's podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. 